Escape velocity. Fuck what a summer it's been. Oh, has it? Yeah. Why? You know the summer's almost over. It is I over. I started to get a little bit depressed about it today. <laughs> depressed? I can't wait for winter. What are you talking about? I love winter. You don't. I love fucking winter. It's, you now know why? I know you're lying. Why? You know what winter means? What does it mean? Hockey. Yeah. And you know what hockey means? Drinking. You know what drinking means? No thinking about bullshit. Right. You know what no thinking about bullshit means? You get to drown out the world's problems. That's right. You know what drowning liver? out the world's problems in my brain leads to? What does it lead to? Fun. Fun. You know what fun leads to? Oh my God, I'm getting tired of this game. Herpes. <laughs> Burpees? Herpes. Anyway, so what have you been doing? Nothing. Oh, you were on tour. I was. Oh, tell us. No, everybody wants to know about how your tour went. Well, hey, t- tell the story about, the, about Mark Chaplin's... Uh, ancestors farmhouse oh that was fucked you're in boston we're boston. not in boston we were driving through northeastern massachusetts mm-hmm. looking for a house that was built in 1601 i believe okay by uh the seventh great grandfather of our sound guy world legend mark Shitpants chaplain mm-hmm. we eventually find this fucking place and walk up to it this little fucking hut built into the side of a hill yeah and is it like is it like a sod house kind of yeah. and this guy walks out looking mildly annoyed right. or confused and intimidated perhaps inti- oh yeah totally intimidated <laughs> by us and uh but notices barney's wearing a menzinger shirt and says menzingers that's weird what, what are you guys are you guys a band we're like yeah yeah we're a band from canada we're called propaganda he's like what really that's fucking weird. I I run a hardcore label out of this place, out right. of Barney's great 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 grandfather's house. Funny. And I'm like, oh yeah, what label? And he's like, Death Wish. I'm like, what? Obviously, Death Wish is Converge's label. Yep. Which is weird enough. But that morning, I'd listened to a new Death Wish release. Probably the first thing I'd ever listened to from Death Wish Records. Right. By that band Punch from California, which are a very good band. Yes. Let's listen to a bit. <laughs> Yeah. 
so that was punch and so the yeah that, it's so fucked how fucked is that, that to drive is, out that into is the a bizarre of, coincidence yeah, very bizarre so they so that is the that is death wishes like headquarters no i think he just lives there oh okay i'm not sure where the other stuff he didn't have to he had to go get surgery uh so we didn't get to talk to him too much but uh i'm sure he, he lied about that because i <laughs> if i saw us coming up the driveway i'd be like oh i gotta go get i'm having a heart attack right I'm now a heart attack no i don't need a ride i'll just get there myself <laughs> now fuck he off starts sprinting down the dirt road so there's that yeah we were on tour with uh reviver and war on women war on women i see have a record deal they do bridge nine Good for them and uh then we came home yeah we went and played some fucking wicked shows out east mm-hmm. it was actually a fucking wicked time that's good that's you seem you seem more upbeat coming home from this tour than you have some previous tours we had a, we had two or three of maybe my top 10 shows of all time really yeah i was just feeling it jaw was with me wow a few times what what, what what shows what places montreal montreal okay new york yep Maybe a bit of Boston. Yeah. They were all good. And then those ones really stood out to me as being like, I don't want this to end. Really? Yeah. New York, crazy crowd. Where was that? Pretty crazy at Webster Hall. Mm -hmm. So then we came home and now we're doing this. How about you? You were at your cottage. Yeah. Yeah. I went to, went to ye old family cottage for a week. That must be nice. Was nice. Some canoeing on the lake. A little bit of mountain biking. What's it like to be such a privileged fuck? It's pretty sweet. You got to say. This white male colonial privilege, I wear it well. You do. I got to wear mine a bit better. <laughs> oh, you mean, oh, you traipsing around in your punk band for a living. That's not... I wear that pretty well then, don't I? <laughs> you do. I do often think, though, when, when we go out there and, like, go on hikes or whatever in the White Shell Provincial Park, it's just fucking weird that I'm just... I can go there in this cabin on land that my grandfather and, and grandmother cleared for buying it for, a, for leasing it for a fucking song from the provincial government mm-hmm. and just building this cabin on this lake that it's just so fucked up yeah you know, i mean it's all taken for granted it's, it's just le- taken for granted it's our leisure land it's when our leisure land and it's like, it was land that yeah, belonged to people people lived and traveled along here whatever they fished in this lake or whatever they're riding fucking canoes like in some ways it's cool because it, it's like fuck think of all the there's just this whole history thousands of years yeah people being here and doing stuff but then now it's just jet skis and yeah motorboats which and, is fucking kind of fun and cool too but is a shame it's a shame it I is wish, a shame i wish but, there were no boats allowed on the lake i hate really motorboats. no boats or no jet skis no motors no, no motorized boats that's what i would vote except for. the jet ski one <laughs> for me just one no. the only one they're fucking fun man i've i've intentionally never i've only ridden one once and it was yeah. super fun very yeah. scary actually yeah I it's, it's it's i mean i am accustomed to feeling that much power between my legs but that, <laughs> it's a lot of power you're sick you're a sick sick man you should go to the doctor so that's what uh, i did for a bit and um that's about it and other than that we've just basically shriveled up into little dribbles of humanity totally crushed by the gravity of world events world events yeah yeah none of it none of it good i know you know i'm almost terrible in that sense it's been a it's been a fucked up year so far yeah even and add robin williams dying to that whole thing mm-hmm. i know everybody's like being fucking maudlin about it but fuck that was that was like michael jackson dying that bothered me even though i didn't you know michael jackson was a weirdo yeah but 
Yeah, it's, uh, I think that the, the culture that we have come up in, you can't help but, you yeah. know, there are these certain fi- iconic figures, especially if they represent something to you from your childhood or I don't know. It's Yeah, and Robin Williams never did anything to hurt anybody no. in, in his work. I actually liked his dramatic roles better than his comedic roles. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I have almost come to the conclusion now where it's like Twitter is bad for my health. I mean, obviously, this is just is a matter of how I'm using it, who I am choosing to follow and what they tweet about. Yeah. But fuck, it's just some days it's like the deluge of insanity. And how about a fucking beheading of a fucking journalist? That is insane. Fucked. You watched it? I did not. I saw like a, I saw like uh, yeah, the why? still of the video. I don't understand why someone watched that. I, no, it's years crazy. ago I accidentally watched these Russian Nazis beheading these migrant workers from I don't know if they're from Chechnya. I don't know where they're from, and I never got over it. No, you can't unsee that. No, no, I did not. I didn't watch the video. I saw the still of the thing in a little Twitter preview. I'm like, this is insane. Yeah, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. Anyway, so world's in a good place. What should we talk about? Oh, Gaza? Sounds great. Here we go. Previously, Chris, you've you've discussed with me various books and ideas by a prominent new atheist author. Hmm. Named Sam Harris. Ah, yes, Sam. Sammy, as I like to refer to him in private. When we have discussed Sam Harris in the past, possibly on this show, possibly not. I think so. I think I've mentioned him in passing. It's been a bit of a, could you call it a love-hate relationship? It has been a qualified endorsement of Sam Harris. A contingent. A contingent, a selective Reading right. a selective interest in Sam Harris's work. When, for example, he has delved into the neuroscience of human morality, right? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. That is interesting shit. Nobody gets hurt. And then sometimes when Sam Harris delves into the controversial subject of belief in the supernatural, a lot of it resonates with me, and then some of it don't. It is the proverbial coal car going off the rails into the tailings pond, which then explodes. not familiar with the proverb. The coal car that goes in the tailings pond. I'm just, I'm inventing it right now. I like it. I'm laying down some new track, so to speak. So Sam Harris, this is why my curiosity was piqued the other day when Sam Harris released a podcast slash article on his website entitled why i don't criticize israel in the midst of israel's current ongoing bombardment of gaza where to date almost 2000 palestinians have been killed most of them civilians and that happening even more broadly in the midst of the economic siege on gaza that's been going on for 7 8 years now and that in the broader context of the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, which has been ongoing for decades. So he chooses to release this, and I thought, what a strange thing to title your essay. Yeah, the title basically tells you his conclusion. Mm -hmm. So you listened to this podcast, did you not? 
I did. I listened with interest. So the reason we bring this up, the reason that I think that this is worth addressing more so than, I mean, there's a fucking million wackadoo fucking crackpot idiots out there spouting off all sorts of Israeli talking points, anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, pro-occupation bullshit. There are a dime a dozen out there. This, I think, is important for a couple reasons. One, one, Sam Harris reports himself to be this hyper-rational, scientific, objective, objective, reason-based thinker. Yes. And as we will demonstrate as briefly as humanly possible, (laughs) this piece demonstrates none of that, blinded by his own ideology. And he has, you know, he is a well-known prominent author who mm. his followers those who are intensely interested in his work are generally of that same mind they consider themselves very rational people who evaluate the world based on facts and data and come mm. to logical conclusions and this podcast has been listened to over 150,000 times you know it has thousands of shares on social media so it's getting a lot of attention people are endorsing it through their activity and i think that it merits more of a takedown than the run-of-the-mill raving fucking ding-dong stuff that's out there. Single-issue atheism. Yeah. SIA. It's your new acronym. A new acronym. Everything can be reduced to whether you believe in the supernatural or not. There could be lots of SIs. There could be SIV, single-issue veganism. SIF, single-issue feminism. Single-issue racism. S-I-R. You're just a single issue racist. Can't you think outside? Can't you connect the issues? Yeah, oh yeah, you're you're firebombing black churches all the time, sure. But what have you done about the feminists? Single issue racist scum. So originally, Chris, we had this plan that we were going to very cleverly play the podcast and interject with our comments. With buzzers, even. With buzzers. It was pretty... The idea was very funny. I really liked the buzzers. They sounded like this. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Simmer down. Oh, simmer down. But in the end, we just ranted angrily for almost two hours. Yes. And then wasted our time editing that two hours down oh, to... God. An hour. I think then, I think because the, the article is, is so frustrating. It is very frustrating. Given that it pretends to be a rational exercise in, in breaking down which side, quote unquote, side you pick in this quote unquote conflict. Right. So we're not going to play the podcast. We will link up his blog post yep. in the show notes, which has the embedded audio. You can check it out if you like. Take a break right now if you want and go listen to it. Okay. And while Chris is doing that, you can listen to me talk. So instead of being impassioned and angry, like we feel inside. Okay, I'm back. I thought perhaps we should do a reasoned, level-headed takedown of some of the key points that he thinks he is making in this piece. That's a great idea. Should I leave the room? <laughs> no. Well, for, first of all, I want to say, I think the piece, I'm, his podcast is, is, it's almost worth listening to for the concessions he makes about the facts on the ground. He concedes there's an occupation. 
He concedes there's a massacre of children. He concedes a whole list of things that are true, yet stupefyingly comes to some bizarre self-interested conclusion. So yes, do listen to that piece. Yeah. The first issue here is one of what is fundamentally Israeli and Judaic exceptionalism. Throughout the piece, and especially at the beginning, he has a specific set of rules that apply when you are discussing Judaism and Israel Mm -hmm. and an entirely different set of rules when you are discussing Islam or Muslims or Palestinians or Hamas. So while he, on the one hand, states that the Torah is filled with some of the most violent and despicable language out of all of the major religions. He says it's the worst. He says it's the worst. He then goes on to say, well, it's overall, it's less dangerous because there's less Jews in the world. And generally Jews are very flexible about their belief in God because I've debated some rabbis who say, oh, you don't have to believe in God. So generally he just kind of states that Judaism is a more forgiving religion when it comes to belief in God or how you interpret God. Uh, But he just states it as fact, ignoring the very real possibility and reality that there are Muslims around the world who interpret their faith in very different ways and have no harsh specific rules foisted on them just because they follow Islam. And conversely, ignoring the on the ground facts of ragingly fucking crazy religious fanatic Jews in Israel. That's right. And in the diaspora. And the disproportionate effects those relatively small number of religious fanatics have on large amounts of people. Because of the state power behind them. He also makes this affordance for war driving Israelis to do unspeakable things. So he talks about Israeli soldiers going berserk and shooting children or the general what he calls the brutalizing process. Right. They're breaking under pressure. The pressure caused by the Palestinians yeah. brings on these aberrations in, in IDF, Israeli Defense Forces or Israeli Occupation Forces behavior. So he's essentially blaming Palestinian rock-throwing kids for driving IDF soldiers past the breaking point of where they would shoot them and and hence excusing that. Yeah, it's a it's a blaming the victim mentality. He he talks about how it's the nature of Israel's enemies that have the character. The character that has made them this brutal, which partially, I mean th- this is true in whatever the whatever the root causes or the nature of the the war or the the military conflict you're in, people are driven to do terrible things. That is not outside of the realm of reality, but he makes no such affordance or gives no such context to any of the actions or motivations of any of the Palestinians. They are, in his view, simply motivated by anti-Semitism. By the Quran. And the, yeah, essentially the Quran. There can be no, you know, the decades-long military occupation the siege, the torture, the bombings, the assassinations, yeah. the abductions. It's, it's, None of this can play a role into their actions in his view. He only gives that affordance to Jews and Israelis. Which is crazy because if anybody's been brutalized in this whole thing, it's Palestinians. By far. By far. By f- any any metric that a scientist could come up with to measure it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's yet another example of, of this double standard essentially that is applied where you know one rule set for israelis and jews another rule set for how you evaluate palestinians and muslims 
And then as a last example, he talks about how Muslim or Palestinian, you know, suicide bombers or those who are launching rockets into Israel, you know, they kill random civilians. They kill children in order to reach a target or they blow themselves up in a hospital. And he uses this as some sort of evidence of the some the sort of fundamental depraved moral character yeah, of, of, of these humans, of, of these humans of on these, the earth. Of these, of these human beings. They're, they're widgets. Uh, they're a character of a widget of a Muslim, not a person. And all those things are true. I mean, those are all terrible things. But when Israel shells an ambulance or drops a bomb on a hospital or a school being used as a shelter, that's not a testament to the fundamental character of Israel. That is simply an accident made by a moral army. That's the rule set he applies. Again, it's like there's regular world and bizarro world. You will ignore all context when you're talking about Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims or Hamas or, you know, whatever you, he interchangeably wants to use. Yeah. And then he applies more rational, introspective ideas about what motivates people when he's talking about Israelis and Jews. Yeah, and I think the important context he, he eliminates there, Israel has this incredible air force, army, navy. The Palestinians have no such army, navy, or air force and have to make shit up as they go along. They gotta if you gotta resist and you got no air force, you got no army, you don't have the fucking luxury of fucking flying an F sixteen and quote unquote pinpointing a, a military target that happens to kill kids anyways. Mm-hmm. You fucking you strap a bomb to your chest and you, you resist. So that plays right into the second point that becomes apparent in this piece is his fundamental othering of Palestinians. He throughout the piece he re- repeatedly uses Hamas, Palestinians, and Muslims interchangeably throughout. And and you never really know why he's replacing one for the other, other than to just provide you the overall impression that these are just one mass of uniform people. Yeah. After he says there's 1.5 billion practicing Muslims yeah. on the planet, he doesn't just talk about them as one thing he he takes examples from different parts of the planet where people have done things and necessarily these are going to be tactics or examples of what palestinians will do mm-hmm. yeah he divorces it all from any context any geopolitics any history you know what kind of situations the individual people in all these disparate parts of the world might be experiencing it's completely absurd yeah he really doesn't know much about the world yeah Especially when there's, he's basically throwing away data as a scientist, mm-hmm. as a rational person ana- analyzing the situation. He seems very willing to discard large quantities of useful data when making his assessment simply because he thinks the only important data point is Islam. Right. This is a classic barbarians at the gate line of thinking where you have the good and moral actors, which in his case is Israel. His and- society. Yeah, the society that him and I think a lot of other people feel the most, you know, oh, they look the most like me. Their society seems like it's the most like mine. I could probably, you know, live there. People feel an affinity. And then beyond that, people can also feel uh, religious or ethnic or cultural affinity if they're Jewish. And then you just otherize the Arab hordes, you know, whether mm-hmm. they're Palestinians of secular or Muslim persuasion, whether it's Hamas or Fatah or the PLO or whether it's... Or my buddy Omar living down the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just one mass. And it's a really it's a really dangerous way 
to discuss 1.5 billion people on the planet because when you group people together you treat them all as intrinsically bad because of their religion you're not setting the stage for anything good he actually says at one point in the essay palestinians want to kill all the jews killing women and children is part of the plan so yeah who's plan yeah, what, pl- which which Palestinians did he talk to? What, you know, we've seen it through before. We've seen it throughout history. You, you present a group of people as though they don't care about life. They don't care about their kids. They have no fundamental moral core. You know, he's just painting all Palestinians as these Quran crazed lunatics that cannot be reasoned with. I think I think one thing that keeps getting thrown up in the air every time people talk about this and they want to just and the discussion in favor of Israeli apologism is they bring up the Hamas Charter. Right. A document written in 1988 with ridiculously stupid language about destroying Jews. Yes. And I think Harris is basing his idea that all Palestinians think this way because they voted in a democratic election, mind you, mm-hmm. for this for this government that has this charter. And he automatically thinks, oh, everybody was reading the charter. When's the last time you voted for a fucking anybody in North America and ever read their charter? Who that you know has ever read the charter of any political party in North America, first of all? Second of all, can I read this little thing from Peter Baynard from Haaretz, a reputable mainstream Jewish Israeli newspaper? Yeah, the New York Times of Israel, one might say. Peter says... For starters, Hamas didn't make Israel's destruction a major theme of its election campaign. In its 2006 campaign manifesto, the group actually fudged the question by saying only that it wanted an independent state whose capital is Jerusalem, plus fulfillment of the right of return. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that by 2006 Hamas had embraced the two-state solution, only that Hamas recognized that running against the two-state solution was not the best way to win Palestinian votes. The polling bears this out. According to exit polls conducted by the prominent Palestinian pollster Khalil Shikaki, 75% of Palestinian voters and a remarkable 60% of Hamas voters said they supported a Palestinian unity government dedicated to achieving a two-state solution, which is in directly, close quotes, directly against what the charter says. Yeah. That's what people were voting for. Yeah. He goes on. So why did Hamas win? Because, according to Shikaki, only 15% of voters called the peace process their most important issue. A full two-thirds cited either corruption or law and order. It's vital to remember that 2006 was the first Palestinian election in more than 10 years. During the previous decade, Palestinians had grown increasingly frustrated by Fatah's unaccountable, lawless, and incompetent rule. According to exit polls, 85% of voters called Fatah corrupt. Hamas, by contrast, because it had never wielded power and because its charitable arm effectively delivered social services, enjoyed a reputation for competence and honesty. Hamas won, in other words, for the same reasons voters all across the world boot out parties that have grown unresponsive and self-interested after years in power. So in other words, so the, the science, the data disputes the implied claim that all Palestinians want to kill all Jews. It's yeah. fucking unbelievable. Yeah. Sam Harris should just stay in the laboratory and look through a microscope at a brain, maybe his own, because he doesn't know fuck all about the real world. How can we know more about the world than a neuroscientist at fucking UCLA or wherever the hell he is? It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. That brings us to the issue of human shields, Chris. And I don't even know if we need to say much about this because it's such, to me, it is such 
a canard in the coverage of the conflict. Because number one, let's speaking of the data, what does the data say? Well, Amnesty International and the UN fact-finding mission in Gaza investigated. This is after Operation Cast Lead 2008-2009. And they found that there was no evidence that Palestinians or Hamas were using human shields. So that's that. <laughs> and as has been noted yeah. by eminent thinker Derek Hogue, that's me. Gaza has a population density of Philadelphia. Yeah, basically, when you think of Gaza, think of Philadelphia. It's Philadelphia, except you can't go anywhere. You can't leave it. If yeah. someone starts bombing Philadelphia, imagine being there and you can't leave. Then imagining try to, trying to mount a resistance against your attackers. You have no military bases. Where the fuck are you going to fire your rockets from? These shitty little rockets you get. Where are you going to fire them from? There's no military base there. Anywhere you fire it from is going to be from civilian infrastructure. Because people make the claim, they say, oh, because Hamas is firing rockets or storing rockets so near to civilian areas, they therefore... They have nowhere else to fire them from. Yeah. Jesus and Christ. I think, that, I think that Amnesty International and the UN fact-finding mission in Gaza agreed. It's canard. It's not worth it's paying attention to. Hamas, I mean, like from our point of view, stop the rockets, you're going to get instantly more sympathy. On the other hand, who are we to tell people who are fucking occupied how to resist? Exactly. I concur. So that brings us to the bomb shelters. He makes this claim that it is a moral illusion to claim that higher civilian casualties in Gaza point to a moral issue on the part of Israelis. Because the only reason he claims that Israelis have a lower civilian casualty rate is because Israel builds bomb shelters for their civilians. But that statement is a factual illusion because the reason that there's high civilian casualties in Gaza, you know, Israel has F-16s, warships, tanks, high-tech drones. So maybe if Hamas had all these things, maybe if Palestinians had all these things, maybe there would be a much higher civilian casualty rate. Right, if the economy Israel. if the economy wasn't under a stranglehold blockade and they could bring in construction materials, maybe they would build some bomb shelters if I they had an economy. To blame Hamas for not building bomb shelters, well under this economic siege in a place, don't forget, where huge amounts of your infrastructure are routinely destroyed. You know, over and over again this has happened. You know, you've bombed, got bombed, bulldozed. Yeah. You're going to build a bomb... Sh like, how long do you think is Israel would tolerate bomb shelters? Yeah, they just call it a tunnel and blow it up anyways. Yeah. Or there'd be one... There'd be some target inside of the bomb shelter, and then they'd just drop a bunker buster. All evidence would point to a bomb shelter being absolutely useless inside Gaza. So, I, again, this is another blame the victim, deflect, you know, another theme throughout the piece. Israel does isn't responsible for anything. They are always reactive there's right. always a passive voice happening where they're not responsible yeah you make us do this you make us do this the stop hitting me argument that you brought up so this brings us to this killing of civilians by israel he claims that because israel has the power the military power that would allow it to kill all people in gaza because they could wipe out the entire joint but they don't, it therefore means that when they do kill civilians, lots of them, lots of them, almost 2,000 in this latest round, it is by definition accidental. 
Yeah. You cannot intentionally kill one civilian if you could kill them all. That is his very strange outer space, extra dimensional, stupid asshat logic. Yeah. At play. It doesn't, I, I don't understand it for a second, especially considering the Goldstone report, which was released after Operation Cast Lead in 2008, 2009, provided evidence of multiple occasions where Israel had deliberately targeted civilians, people fleeing their homes, waving white flags. You know, this is documented. Again, ignoring the data, the neuroscientist ignoring the data and just making, just inventing arguments out of whole cloth that allows him to maintain his predetermined ideological position. So where does this leave us? What is the outcome of Sam Harris's argument? I think the outcome of Sam Harris's argument is that you cannot reason or negotiate with the Palestinians because of their because Muslim, of their religion because of their religion because of their dominant religion they simply want to kill all the Jews and wipe Israel off the map no matter what even if they say the opposite yeah e- even even if they when vote it the goes opposite. against all the statements of Palestinian leaders over the decades even it goes against all serious political analysis of the situation according to him it's not about the occupation it's not about the siege it's not about the bombings or the assassinations or the torture it's not about any of that all it is about is muslims hating jews and so where does that leave you in if you follow that line of thinking you are either in a forever war with these people as a state of israel in the middle of a predominantly muslim region or you have to wipe out your enemies you know if israel wants peace they're going to have to wipe out their enemies. That is the only... That's what Sam Harris leaves us with. That's, that's the logical outcome of this line of thinking. Because when you when you ignore all evidence to the contrary, and you are convinced that you are dealing with fundamentally irrational people who are driven only by the words of the Quran, <laughs> no other context, they're not people, they're characters from this cartoon that you've doodled on your notepad on the toilet while you're masturbating you saw me (laughs) that's the only logical outcome and it's i think it's terrifying so with that in mind having recommended people listen to his podcast i now suggest you don't listen to his podcast and if you did waste a fucking time unless you want to understand dingbatness i think the instructive thing to me in all this is that it shows how no one is, we are all flawed, ridiculous, fucking meat sack humans. Every one of us. So it doesn't surprise me that someone who is so committed to logic and reason ostensibly can be so blinded by his own in-group biases or his own ideology. That's not surprising, but it is instructive, I think, to see, watch it play out so baldly. Yeah, it like makes in it, such a ridiculous fashion. It emphasizes it more because of his line of work. And I think there is actually a lesson to be taken from this, which is that we should we have to apply this understanding to ourselves as well. Don't look at Sam Harris and think, "What a fucking stupid dodo brain." No offense to dodos. That he can't even see past his own bias. This piece is just dripping with and think that 
we're not capable of, of that, that we don't do it all the time. I think it takes some serious work when you have an in-group, when you have biases that you, you know, you have to work against them. It doesn't just happen normally. We're all fucking wrong all the time. You, well, you, most of you are. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> My guess, Chris, yeah, is that people are tired of hearing us pontificate on our own uninformed, miseducated, dim-witted, half-baked, stupid poo-poo brain. Hey, come on. Opinions. That's a pretty good guess. That's a pretty good guess. Because we don't, this is, most of our days are spent thinking about not the geopolitical context of the great struggles in the world well that's not true i'm afraid that's not true i would rather just be drunk 24 7 yeah but don't have enough money to keep that going (laughs) and that's the only impediment the only impediment send your donations so in lieu of us continuing to awkwardly pontificate on the nature of Colonial struggles, religion, historical hatreds, ahistorical atheists. Perhaps it would be instructive to the listenership if we were to bring another voice in who could perhaps elucidate the history of this very conflict. Absolutely. What does elucidate mean? So I decided to call up one Nora Barrows Friedman. Who is... This one, Nora Barrows Friedman. Well, Chris, let me tell you, Nora Barrows Friedman is an award-winning independent journalist, and she is currently an associate editor at the Electronic Intifada. You know that website? I do. It is an independent website focusing on Palestine. She also writes for the Interpress Service, Al Jazeera, Truthout, and other outlets, and she regularly reports from Palestine, where she has worked training youth in digital media arts since 2005. Nora Barrows Friedman. Any relation to Marty Friedman from Megadeth? Okay, so uh, Nora Barrows Friedman, thanks for joining us today on Escape Velocity Radio. Thanks for having me. So we've all seen the horrific photos, videos, uh, firsthand accounts coming out of Gaza over the past month or so uh, as a result of Israel's Operation Protective Edge. But rather than go into the details of this one sort of contemporary slice of the conflict, I was hoping you could take us through some of the history of just how we got here to this royally fucked up place that we're at right now. So to start, how far back do we actually have to go in order to understand what's happening in Israel and Palestine today? Like, what's our starting point? Well, there's several starting points. We could talk about a century ago when the British mandate essentially you know, came in and, and prepared for uh, a Zionist project, colonial project in Palestine um, around World War I and then by World War II, you know, right afterwards, we could talk about how the Zionist project that was begun in Europe, which had its designs on colonizing and ethnically cleansing Palestine and, and creating 
you know, a nationalist homeland for uh, Jewish people uh, from all over the world was implemented in 1948. And, And essentially what happened leading up to the establishment of the State of Israel uh, on May 15th, 1948, there were a series of pogroms and ethnic cleansing operations carried out by Zionist militias um, all over uh, historic Palestine. And by 1948, uh, more than 500 Palestinian villages, towns and cities were destroyed were left in ruins, and 750,000, perhaps as much as 800,000 indigenous Palestinians were driven from their homelands and either stayed in refugee camps um, in what would become the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, but also in Syria, in Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, And others fled elsewhere to Europe, to North America, and to Latin America, um, and elsewhere across the Middle East. And so... What we see now is kind of the symptoms of those colonialist projects. What we have now is 67 years of Zionist colonization and ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinian population. Um, What we see in Gaza, of course, 80% of the population in Gaza, and we're talking about almost 2 million people there, 80% of whom are refugees from villages and towns and cities that used to be or are still are right over the boundary in what is present day Israel. Um, And so, you know, what we're seeing in Gaza, uh, what we're seeing in the occupied West Bank, including uh, East Jerusalem, is that continuation of a project of ethnic cleansing, a project of supremacy, a project of apartheid, a project of stealing land, annexing land for the benefit of, you know, a foreign settler colonial population. Many people frame this as a religious conflict between Jews and Muslims in which there seems to be no solution due to the intractability of religious beliefs. But, you know, what you're describing there sounds to me to be more about land and statehood than religion. So I'm wondering what role religion does play in this conflict. Yeah, it's a really good point. It is about land and and supremacy um, and control of one population by another. Religion, like you said, there's this adage of like, you know, a clash of civilizations, of an intractable religious conflict. Jews and non-Jews have never gotten along in, in Palestine. And that's simply not true. I mean, before 1948, before Zionists were were given free reign to depopulate, ethnically cleanse, and push out the indigenous population. Jews and non-Jews, Muslims, uh, Christians, uh, secularists, all lived together in Palestine. There are so many stories you can find really easily of Jewish and Muslim or Christian neighbors um, in Jerusalem babysitting each other's kids, going over to each other's homes for different religious traditional meals, people nursing each other's babies. I mean, it was it was a different time because there, there wasn't this, this system set up in which um, one population was deemed more superior or more entitled to another. And that only happened that the so-called conflict really was born after the Zionists proclaimed a foreign land theirs and therefore 
people who were already there did not have the same rights to that land, uh, you know, overnight. It doesn't have anything to do with religion other than the fact that religion has been used as a bargaining tool, has been used as a distraction. And unfortunately, Zionism as a political ideology is completely antithetical to Judaism, in my view, as a Jewish person myself, to Judaism as a religion, as a culture, and as a tradition. And and that's, you know, as many Jewish people around North America and and Europe, uh, you know, all over the world say that Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism and that it is Zionism, first of all, has been most horrifying to, of course, the Palestinian people. And it has been really detrimental to Judaism because now Jews are synonymized with this political nationalist, militarist ideology, which is based on a supremacist view of Jews over anybody else. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, Israeli Jews who are Zionists also subscribe to this myth that Jews are somehow, the, you know, chosen over everyone else, that somehow God is a real estate agent that, that quote unquote, gave them this land. There are so many Jews around the world who say this is not what Judaism is about and not in my name will Israel claim Judaism as a nationalist ideology. So can you, maybe for our listeners, could you just kind of, I mean, I guess you're kind of defining it broadly as you're describing um, the situation, but just people hear different things when they hear the, when they hear the word Zionism, could you just give us the best definition you can as to what that actually means, like actually existing in the world? Sure. Uh, Zionism is, like I said, a nationalist political ideology that says that Jews are entitled to uh, land, which is called Palestine, and and that uh, Jews, quote unquote, deserve a homeland only for Jews. It's a project that seeks to homogenize a land and and fill it only with Jews and that non-Jews are, are not allowed and are not welcome in that land. That's essentially what it is. And, and Zionism, the early Zionists were very clear to point out that anyone who stood in the way of this colonial project in Palestine, if it came to the fact that they had to ethnically cleanse people, so be it. And we see that carrying out today. We see that, you know, right now in Gaza where... There have been religious edicts handed down by rabbis in Israel who say that the Bible condones this type of activity, that that non-Jews are essentially non-humans, and that by eliminating them, it is furthering the project of Zionism. It's extraordinarily frightening. And it, you know, it's it's uh, religious fundamentalism at its worst. That description makes it sound to me that there's a very real religious dimension to Zionist yeah. ideology, and hence to the conflict. It's hard to separate, of course, the religious aspect from the political one when you're talking about um, Israel's settler colonialist project in Palestine. But it's it's neither just one or the other. Right. Um, and, you know, I see it more as a political strategy to use and manipulate religion to further the fundamentalist political ideology of Zionism. I think that if, you know, and there have been so many rabbis who, who are experts at the Bible and the Torah um, who say that there is absolutely no justification, of course, for Zionism as, as a means to claim land that, that belongs to other people. 
and to justify the murder and genocide and ethnic cleansing of those people. It's also interesting because, you know, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about how, you know, we're seeing some pretty scary shit happening right now in Iraq and Syria with uh, ISIS declaring uh, a Muslim caliphate, which seems in definition to be very, very similar to your description of the Zionist goal as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not very religious. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more interested in cultural and and tradition as as my kind of takeaway from from my Jewish identity. Um, I think that fundamentalism in any form is is dangerous. That's just my personal opinion. But I think the fact that Israel is not just this kind of lone fundamentalist outpost, that it actually is a major world player, that it actually has the backing and political alliance and military support of the United States and the European Union, that it frequently you know, violates international laws as, as it has every day since the original ethnic cleansing campaigns began in the late 1940s that coupled with its unbelievably racist fundamentalist political policies that it actually it it should be looked at as a a rogue pariah and nuclear addled state i mean we're looking at a, a a country that has a secret nuclear weapons program that the united states has has allowed essentially to continue because it, it keeps vetoing measures to, to explore and, and survey Israel's nuclear weapons program. I think that it, it can't be entirely compared to, to other kind of, you know, smaller stateless militias, precisely because it is a, a country that has major political goals and major political alliances with the world superpowers. So when listening to the discourse uh, around this conflict, you also often hear people talk about 1948 and 1967 and the borders contained therein. So I was wondering if you just explain to us why these dates are important and what exactly they represent in the conflict. So in 1948, as I mentioned, Israel um, established itself as a state on the backs of what Palestinians call the Nakba, which means catastrophe, which is when um, as many as 800,000 indigenous Palestinians were forced from their land as Zionist militias swept through the countryside and demolished Palestinian villages, towns, and cities. Palestinians, as I said, were forced into refugee camps. They originally thought that they would only be there for a few weeks and then would be able to go back. People are now 67 years waiting to go back to their homes, which are sometimes just a few miles as the crow flies from their refugee camps. And, you know, of course, they are not allowed to step foot in that land, which is theirs, which they have deeds to, which they're, you know, they're, they're generations, you know, we're talking millennia um, of attachment to that land and, and ownership of that land. And so right now um, you're describing land that would be inside what is considered Israel proper that's today. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And then um, in 1967, Israel, after the so-called Six-Day War, Israel militarily occupied the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, the Syrian Golan Heights, which remain occupied, and the Gaza Strip. So in 1967, those sort of boundaries were drawn. They're not borders. They're not internationally recognized borders, as, as we see now. And Israel has, you know, as soon as those the occupations were settled in, Israel began building settlements inside the West Bank and Gaza Strip. 
and those settlements have now grown in the in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem. There's over half a million settlers living in dozens of colonial enclaves around the West Bank. They're actually, you know, if you look at the area of land inside the West Bank that is that doesn't have settlements in it, it looks like archipelagos. I mean, these are little islands now of land separated by Israel's wall in the West Bank that it has built, separated by the settlements themselves, separated by Israeli-only roads that Palestinians cannot drive on, and separated by hundreds and hundreds of checkpoints. So, you know, Israel still militarily occupies the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, the Syrian Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip. Even though there aren't settlements anymore inside the Gaza Strip, Israel uh, redeployed its occupation troops to the, the borders, uh, including the, the maritime borders in the Mediterranean Sea. So that's what we talk about when, when we talk about 1967. There are, for decades now, there have been talks about implementing what they call a two-state solution along the 67 borders. And, you know, right now, if you look at a map, it's geographically impossible to, to have a contiguous Palestinian state, so-called because Gaza is is geographically separated from the West Bank, and the West Bank is is just Swiss cheese at this point because of all the settlement colonies. And Israel has essentially implemented its own one-state solution as they continue to um, encroach upon Palestinian land in the West Bank, uh, as they continue to push Palestinian citizens of Israel out of their villages, especially in the Nakab Desert in the south, and as they continue to completely suffocate the Gaza Strip under the siege that has been going on since 2006 and and uh, during these types of bombing campaigns. So that makes me think of how you you know have framed this and described this as Israel's colonial project. You and I both live in colonial countries where yeah. the indigenous nations, you know, although still present and often still resisting their absorption into the state, they've nonetheless been decimated to make up only a tiny portion of the population. That's right. So I'm wondering if there are useful parallels to be drawn there. And if you think that the relationship that, say, Canada or the United States has with the indigenous nations in North America is ultimately the type of relationship that Israel wants to have with the Palestinians, basically controlling the entire territory with just tiny, you know, that could almost be described as ethnic enclaves of Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of parallels with the the colonial projects in North America and and what's happening in Palestine. Of course, both situations are very similar and and there's, there's so many differences. I think that the weapons that are used today, you know, are, are, I mean, it, there's there's no guesswork involved in in what Israel's intention is um, when it comes to eliminating non-Jews in in Palestine, Israel, um, and I think it, that you know that's exactly what happened in in North America and what continues to happen in indigenous communities here that are trying to hang on. I mean, here in the U.S., indigenous communities on so-called reservations, you know, they hardly have water or electricity. And and their land is continuously being taken away bit by bit as, you know, there, there's a, the Keystone Pipeline, of course, Obama's big project, which was being planned to go through indigenous communities um, in the Midwest. 
and the indigenous people there have risen up and have tried to to block this from happening. It's just this kind of this constant slow motion ethnic cleansing that continues to happen 500 years later. And in Palestine, of course, the geography is much, much, much smaller, but the tactics are the same. The weapons are more sophisticated, but the tactics are the same. The early Zionists were talking about, you know, not having one person left, you know, just pushing everybody out. There was even, you know, these these old sayings, you know, there's a a land without a people for a people without a land. So the people who were there, you know, there was an actual vibrant society, culture, communities with different traditions and different dialects. And, you know, I mean, it was was one of the, it's one of the oldest continuously habited places in the world. They were looked at immediately by the foreign invaders as non-humans who could be eliminated easily. I think they underestimated the resistance that they would face and continue to face today. And I think that's applicable to the indigenous resistance on this continent that the, you know, the settler powers still underestimate and still don't recognize. To jump ahead to this latest Israeli assault on Gaza and in that same vein, you know, we're seeing so much carnage, shelling of schools, hospitals, yeah. power plants. You know, why are we seeing so many dead? Why, why such mass destruction? Do you think that it is simply part of the tactic to reduce the population or is it you know something broader behind this you know i don't think many people still believe that this was actually about tunnels or rockets right no i mean they've changed their their definition of what this was actually about about 50 times now you know i think it it's it's so it's so deeply layered i think of course it has to do with eliminating people I think, of course, it has to do with political aspirations of, of the, you know, the top officials in the Israeli government who want to appear to the Israeli population, which is very, very pro-violence and, and pro-racism at this point, that they can, you know, quote unquote, eliminate uh, Hamas. You know, Hamas is this kind of like archetype entity now. They're, you know, they've been, de- the people in Gaza have been dehumanized so much that they don't even see individual people. They just see an entity called Hamas. I, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a large portion of this, this, this aspect of using Gaza as really a laboratory for field testing new weapons. And this is not just hyperbole or rhetoric. There was a, an article, I think, last week in Haaretz, saying that Israeli weapons manufacturers are now touting their new weapons as being battle-tested, you know, and, and that is in reference to look at all the destruction we are able to wreak on Gaza just now, and they're, they're expecting enormous profits from these new weapons. I, I think it has to do with trying to beat Palestinians into submission, and, you know, which is obviously a losing battle. I think Palestinians, every, every day they resist just by waking up and going to school and raising their kids and having kids and living under these completely inhumane, abnormal circumstances. I think that's extraordinary resistance, as well as the resistance fighters and, and the militias who have proven themselves to be able to, to stand up against a brutal, massive military machine. The Israeli public, unfortunately, has been been really, you know, asking and demanding that the government draw more blood from Palestinians. I mean, the the type of really the lynch mobs and the the pogroms that have been happening around Jerusalem and and elsewhere inside inside present day Israel 
have been absolutely frightening, where these these young fascist groups, um, these Israeli youth are going around beating up any Palestinian person they see, yelling death to the Arabs, graffitiing uh, extraordinarily racist and bigoted you know, slogans about what, what they'd like to do to Palestinians. Of course, we saw the murder, the kidnapping and murder of the Palestinian teen in June, who was taken by an Israeli man who was just revealed to, to actually be a resident in a settlement and was, was beaten and was forced to drink gasoline or they had poured gasoline into his mouth and then set him on fire. There have been other attempts at kidnappings of Palestinian youth around Jerusalem the last you know, six weeks. It's, it's really frightening. Um, I mean, we're even seeing neo-Nazi groups popping up inside inside Israel. People who are wearing the insignias of European neo-Nazi factions are, are going to these fascist hate rallies and, and proudly displaying their alliance and their allegiance with European neo-Nazi groups. I mean, the, it's just, it's Orwellian and it, it's a nightmare for Palestinians and, and people who are left-wing activists in Israel. Two things you mentioned there, Hamas and the armed resistance inside Gaza Strip and the occupied territories. These days, the two main talking points that you hear from pro-Israeli or anti-Palestinian voices revolve around those two things. One being the crassness of the Hamas charter and what it might say about their motivations and the Palestinian rocket attacks on civilian areas in southern Israel. Mm -hmm. So as someone who supports Palestinian resistance to the occupation, I was wondering if you could address those points in turn. So to start with, what is the deal with Hamas? Um, Hamas is a legitimate political party that was voted into government by the Palestinian people in Gaza in 2006. Um, they actually didn't really expect to win, and they won. Um, and it was really a vote of confidence in an alternative party because for the last you know, 20 years before, the, the Palestinian Authority had been, you know, which is led by the Western-backed um, Mahmoud Abbas, who, who sits in power in the occupied West Bank, had been completely kind of selling out the the demands of the Palestinian civil society in terms of you know lifting the occupation, demanding freedom of movement, demanding a viable access to to their you know economy, um, demanding of course the right of return for refugees to to return back to their homes from which they were expelled in 1948, and the Palestinian Authority had been systematically kind of giving up those demands in return for access to to really like a, a neoliberalist agenda in the West Bank. And so in 2006, the Palestinians in Gaza held an election. They voted the Fatah party out of office and voted in Hamas. And yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at Fox News or, you know, whatever the, the news is comparable in, in Canada, you know, they'll they'll always point to Hamas's charter as, you know, eliminating Jews from the face of the earth or something. And then that's, you know, if you just do a Google search and actually look at the charter, it doesn't say that at all. What the demands are now in terms of, of the ceasefire, they're very modest and they're very plain and simple. The demands by Hamas and other Palestinian resistant factions and by Palestinian civil society says in order to have a lasting ceasefire, Israel needs to lift the siege. The siege has been 
completely suffocating the Gaza Strip since 2006 and 2007. Goods and services are not allowed in. People are not allowed out. It's essentially an open-air concentration camp. Um, Palestinian fishermen can't fish past three nautical miles out to sea or else they get shot at by Israeli naval vessels. Access to freedom of movement is another demand, which seems like something that we take for granted. If you want to go to New York, you book a plane ticket and you go to New York. Palestinians in Gaza can't go anywhere. They can't get, you know, Gaza is 23 miles by five miles. It's a tiny, tiny little strip of land and they can't leave. Uh, and Egypt, colluding with Israel, especially in the last year, has also sealed the border. So when Gazans were able to get out, trickling out to either get hospital care in Egypt or to get basic goods and services, they were able to leave by the Rafah crossing. And that has been systematically closed by Egypt, which has helped Israel enforce the suffocating blockade. So, so freedom of movement is another demand. And access to Gaza's seaport allowing Palestinian fishermen and maritime business to happen at the seaport, as well as opening up the Gaza airport. There was an airport in Gaza in, in the south that was bombed uh, over and over again since uh, the year 2000. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just dust and rubble at this point. But, but the fact that Palestinians um, are calling for you know the ability to rebuild and use their airport does not seem like an unreasonable demand, um, and those are just some of the ones that Palestinians, uh, including the government in Gaza, are asking for as terms for a lasting ceasefire. They're not asking for Jews to be dumped in the sea. They're not asking for there to be a so-called Islamic state in Pal. You know, it's like all of these really racist tropes are being trotted out over and over again without actually looking at the facts. Um, what are Palestinians demanding? They're demanding freedom of movement. They're demanding um, access to goods and services. They're demanding access to medicines that they've been banned from receiving in Gaza. I mean, there are hospitals who have the most heroic uh, physicians, paramedics, nurses, uh, psychologists who are working without resources at all. I mean, you know, I was just talking with a, a doctor the other day who said that you know they have enough medicine and basic supplies to keep the surgery and emergency departments running. But what about the cancer ward? They haven't had medication for cancer patients uh, who need chemotherapy since the siege began. So people who have chronic illness, you know, people who need dialysis have needed to go elsewhere, have needed to get permission from you know the Egyptian authorities to be able to, to go to Egypt to go to a hospital there just to get dialysis treatment. Um, and now that Egypt has sealed that border, people are dying of diseases that could be easily treated, that are easily treated everywhere else in the world. You know, and then in terms of the larger picture, what the Palestinian demands are, again, which are, are basic and understandable, is an end to the occupation, is freedom of movement anywhere, is the right of return for the refugees, which number in this you know, 7 million around the world, to be able to return to their homes that they were purged from. Um, these are all very reasonable demands that are held up as basic human rights for everyone else in the world except for Palestinians. What about the uh, the rocket attacks yeah. into southern Israel? What's, you know, who's firing these rockets? What's the purpose behind them? What's the history of how this has unfolded? Well, I mean, the thing is, 
you know, these rockets wouldn't be firing if Israel agreed to basic human rights and, and international laws pertaining to the freedom of Palestinians. You can't you know, exterminate and purge Palestinians, force them into tiny concentration camps, and then be surprised when they attempt to fight back. You just can't. I mean, anybody in the world would, you know, if, if you talked about a foreign invading settler colonialist force coming into Winnipeg and putting people in cages, you know, people in Winnipeg wouldn't sit around and say, God, should we, should we sit, you know, around a campfire and sing Kumbaya, or should we fight back? People would fight back. That's what Palestinians are doing. They're fighting back. They're they're using whatever little resources they have um, to build their own resistance movement. They don't have an army. They don't have a military. They're, this is not an equal conflict where one you know huge military is going against another huge military. Palestinians aren't allowed to have a military. They aren't allowed to to have any sort of security forces except for the ones that they scrap together ad hoc. And so that's why these resistance factions exist. And these rockets are crude, they're tiny, and there's one way to stop this rocket fire, and that is for Israel to stop killing, imprisoning, ethnically cleansing, and pushing out Palestinians and denying them their basic rights. So you've been a vocal supporter of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. And one of the, the demands of the BDS movement is the right of return for some five, you say now, seven million Palestinian refugees, as you mentioned. And this demand has been now somewhat famously criticized by Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein as Mm. a tactical non-starter. So I'm just wondering why this is such a controversial demand and what the right of return for the refugees would actually look like. Like, what are its implications? Well, I think the right of return for refugees, you know, I mean, I'm not Palestinian. It's not my right to say what they should or shouldn't do. But Palestinians were granted the right of return. It's a guaranteed human right that was passed in the United Nations in 1949 and upheld every year since and vetoed by, you can guess, U.S. and Israel. So when Palestinians talk about their guaranteed right of return, it's up to them, finally, since 1948, where they can live. That, That right of uh, you know, of, of deciding where you want to spend your retirement or deciding, you know, whether to, to go back to your grandfather's land or something has been has been denied to people since 1948. So Palestinians, you know, for now three or four generations later, many of those seven million people are in other countries. They're, you know, they have families elsewhere. It should be up to them to decide if they want to remain in that country or in that um, village or in that refugee camp area, um, or if they want to go back to the land that they are guaranteed um, and that has been stolen from them. You know, just, just to have that choice um, is something that has been denied. And I believe that the stranglehold on Palestinian refugee rights, of course, will come to an end someday. Israel can't hold back the tide of, of history, of this, you know, the, the moral arc of history. I think it's only a matter of time. And and the, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement um, upholds that right for Palestinians as a basic human right. The BDS movement, I think, is one of the most exciting and strategic and effective ways of bypassing this notion that political 
solutions can only be motivated and implemented by by the heads of power. Um, I think that because politicians, American, Canadian, European politicians especially, have systematically denied human rights to Palestinians and have looked the other way or even supported Israel's violations of international laws in those respects. I think that international civil society is saying, all right, well, armed resistance is a taboo. Um, You don't want people to take up arms against Israel. So what's the alternative is nonviolent or unarmed resistance to Israel's violations of international law and human rights. So the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement is that strategy. It means that Israel, just like apartheid South Africa, was condemned by international civil society and there was a massive movement to hold it politically accountable and economically accountable for its violations of human rights uh, against the indigenous people of South Africa. This movement intends to do exactly the same, um, you know, boycotting Israeli goods and services, um, especially in terms of like military uh, industries uh, and, and also consumer products, divesting from uh, investments in, in Israeli products and, and companies and sanctioning politically, sanctioning Israel because of its intransigence and its, you know, and, and its violations of laws. I think we can't just sit around and 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 hope and and wish that Obama or Harper will come to their senses and eventually, you know, condemn Israel and and then make it atone for its uh, violations of of laws. We can't do that. I mean, so, you know, that's that's not how the system works. And so it's up to international civil society. Um, to listen to the demands of Palestinians who lead this boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. I mean, in 2005, it was started by over 170 civil society organizations in Palestine who were saying, look, we need, we need the international community to rally around us as we attempt to do what we can uh, in an unarmed, nonviolent way to hold Israel accountable. So that, that's what BDS is. And yeah, there have been some criticisms of it by some of our, our favorite luminaries, but I think the popular opinion is swaying so much heavy on the side of supporting BDS um, as a tactic and, and because it's so effective, because it's, it's such a, cent- a central rallying cry and, and strategy to, to community organizations, to international organizations, to human rights activists who you know, feel like holding another protest and and holding hands at a candlelight vigil really won't stop Israel's bombs from falling on Gaza. What will stop Israel's bomb from falling is taking away um, their ability to do so diplomatically, politically, economically, and legally. And that's what BDS aims to do. So you spent a lot of time with Palestinians in the occupied territories, and you've been reporting on this conflict for many years. So, you know, given everything we've talked about, some of the shorter term demands in terms of freedom of movement and lifting the siege, and some of the longer term goals in terms of ending the occupation, the right of return for refugees, what do you see in terms of a long term solution? If if all the blocks could start falling into place tomorrow... You know, what could we see in five or 10 years? What would exist in the land that is now Palestine and the occupied territories and Israel? And what would it look like? It's a really good question. I mean, that's that's something that Palestinians will, you know, and are envisioning at this moment. 
Um, you know, I'm not Palestinian. I'm not Israeli. I have no, you know, ties to that land other than, you know, I, I love so many people who are there. And I think in terms of envisioning what that will look like, it won't be an overnight peaceful entity. I mean, I think, of course, apartheid is going to fall. Of course, Israel is going to end its occupation. Of course, the wall will be dismantled. Of course, Palestinians will be allowed the freedom of movement and the right of return. I think all these things are going to happen. But then everyone there will have to move into a place of reconciliation with themselves, I think, especially Israelis. As members of the settler colonial class, as people who have um, held extraordinary privilege and have uh, held entitlement and a sense of, you know, uh, supremacy over that land. I think that they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that they stole it, that they have to bear responsibility for that, and that they are not, you know, more entitled, they're not better than the, the original people there. I think that people in South Africa, I'm sure, have had to do exactly the same sort of taking of responsibility for their privilege, for their enjoyment of that privilege, and for, for the racism that that privilege uh, entailed. And, and that's exactly what's happening in Israel now. And, and Palestinians have had this generational trauma now to deal with, where for the last you know four or five generations, They've been dehumanized, they've been pushed out, they've been given absolutely no compensation, they've been um, obliterated, their houses have been taken, their, their entire livelihoods and traditions have been stolen, and I think there's going to be a lot of anger, to put it mildly, you know, and that's, I mean, that's what Israel planted. Those are the seeds that Israel and the Zionists planted in 1948. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a tragedy. Um, It never had to be like this. You know, Palestinians welcomed Jewish immigrants to their country, you know, especially after the horrors of World War II. But they never, they never said that you can have our country, we'll leave. That's, that's not something that any indigenous population should ever have to put up with. You know, I hope I, my daughter's 13 and I hope by the time she's an adult, the, the occupation will have fallen, apartheid will have fallen and Palestinians and Israelis will be able to exist in one singular, secular, democratic state that represents everybody. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, everyone being nice to each other and, and again, like sitting around a campfire and singing Kumbaya and saying, oh, this was just all just a misunderstanding. I think there's going to have to be a lot of responsibility taken, especially by the Israelis, about their, their role in all of this. But it's going to happen. No apartheid system in modern history has been allowed to thrive for very long. And this has been the longest um, military occupation of, of a people in modern history. And, and it will stop and it will end. It's just a matter of what happens next that I, I think is, is the big question. And that's the question you asked. And, and I still don't exactly have a, <laughs> have a solid vision, but, um, but it, it's a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Well, Nora, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate some of your insight on this. Thank you so much, Derek. 
Good job on this, Derek. That was uh, another good interview, really comprehensive, concise, delivered the goods, gave us some context for what we need to know. Thank you. I think the only thing that stood out to me in this interview that keeps nagging at me when I uh, think about the conflict between Israel and Palestine is, is Nora related to Marty Friedman of Megadeth? I can't shake that. I just think, how many Friedmans can there be in the States? Like, there's two. There's her and, 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 Marty, Friedman and Marty Friedman from, from, Megadeth. from Megadeth. Yeah, uh, that That's what comes to mind first and foremost. The only other thing that stood out was uh, her comments on the Hamas charter. To summarize, she, she felt that the Hamas charter is a canard. Yeah. One of your favorite words. That yep. it's a distraction from what's going on. People focus on it to dismiss any further talk yes, about Hamas right. to delegitimize them as a legitimate political player in the region. Mm-hmm. But if you read the charter, and I think this is what people are focusing on, it's, it happens in like the first nine paragraphs where they talk about killing Jews and, and that, in fact, rocks and trees will tell <laughs> Hamas yeah. that there's a Jew hiding behind them and come and kill the Jew. Yeah. To start your charter with that, I mean, you've already, you kind of fucked yourself yeah, because people- have lost the plot. You've lost the plot. But the interesting thing about that to me is that later in the document, in, in the same Hamas charter, is a section about Muslims, Jews, and Christians coexisting peacefully as long as nobody's fucking with the sovereignty of the region in relation to yeah. Islamic sovereignty, essentially. Yeah. So that's the same thing Israel would say. Yeah. If you fuck with us, if you fuck with our Jewish sovereignty, our Jewish state, we're going to fuck with you. So yeah. they're saying the same thing, and it contradicts that weird cryptic biblical shit in the first part of it. And that's what Fox News or Sun News Network, they cherry pick yeah. to, to stop people thinking about it. And even Sam Harris cherry picks that without referencing the later passage in an admittedly weird, bizarre uh, and not surprising. Yeah, uh, dramatically. It's what you would expect from a religious slash nationalistic charter coming from a resistance movement, which is which living is under occupation. Living under occupation and which is explicitly Islamic. I mean, the Hamas started as a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood and they are unabashed about that. So it's exactly what you would expect. You know, lots of flair, lots of quotes from the Quran, you and know, ha- and having lived under thousands of years of incursions from the West, incursions from other people trying to take over their land and, and destroy their sovereignty. Yeah. You know, I, I think you, you want to be supportive of people who are resisting uh, occupation. People are resisting more powerful forces trying to crush them. But that does not mean that you are unable to critique certain aspects. You know, I mean, I'm sure Palestinians would have many things to say about some of the more absurd aspects of Hamas, not just the charter, but their interpretation of Sharia and and how they want that to function just socially within Palestine. So I don't think you have to hand wave all that in order to be, you know, a constructive ally to the movement. I think, in fact, your position is stronger if you don't shy away from making those critiques in Nora's defense she might be hand waving it because she knows for a fact that the exit polls after Hamas won the 2006 election indicated that people weren't voting for Hamas because they were going to destroy Israel right people voted for them because Fatah was corrupt and Hamas was delivering social services in the meantime that people needed so they they got the confidence of the people over completely secular issues yeah so I think ultimately 
I don't think we're making too strong of a critique there because the, the reality, what is happening now is what is important. What are the demands yes. of the leadership? What were the demands of the ceasefire? What do regular Palestinians want? You know, these things we've known for decades, all the leadership, all of the political organizations, all the political analysis of the region, it all points to the same thing. And it's not about an Islamic state or killing the Jews. It's about ending the occupation. It's about justice. It's about the refugees. So that's that. One other thing I wanted to yes. briefly touch on is my penis um, is my question regarding the BDS movement, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. I mean, that all sounded good. I don't think I don't think anybody can really dispute that the idea of the tactic is a good one in that it's a way to raise the cost of the occupation, basically, for for Israel. I think that the critiques that have come from, and, you know, we had talked previously about Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein, their critiques of it. And Chomsky has kind of doubled down on that recently. He's had an article in The Nation and then a bunch of responses and he was on Democracy Now! And But I don't think she really addressed the issue with the having the right of return as a condition of the BDS campaigns, like basically saying this campaign will go until Israel recognizes and implements write a return for some five to seven million Palestinian refugees and their descendants around the world. I think that there's a difference between what justice ultimately looks like and what, when you're in the throes of a political tactic, what is smartest. And it's almost like, especially now that Israel is even further shit the bed by just laying bare the insane criminality it is willing to commit in an attempt to further its interests. It's the sympathy for a movement like the BDS movement is now probably at an all-time high. It seems like it's even more important to make sure that the tactic is ironclad uh, as opposed to vulnerable to attacks based on what the eventual outcome of, of its demands might right. look like. But Maybe. it's a slippery it's a slippery slope because given that all these people were tossed out of there, mm-hmm. the right of return isn't an unreasonable request. No, it's not. It's just not, it's not realistic in quotes. Yes. Which is constantly what the victor always throws in the face Mm -hmm. when it comes to truth and reconciliation. Say, well, we have to be realistic. Yeah. And I guess we do, but you know, how come it's always the oppressed who have to be realistic? Well, that's why I say it's like, yeah, it's the justice of it is apparent, but, and, and that's a little bit what, you know, with my last question kind of saying, if everything could go to plan, if you could snap your fingers everything would unfold the way we would ideally like to see it, you know, what would that end up looking like? And I think I'd never read the book, but I think her co-editor, Ali Abunima, who I believe started, he founded the Electronic Intifada. And he has a book called One Country, which I have not read, but I believe that part of that book's premise is trying to lay out a vision for this. What would a single unified state look like? Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason that people say that the right of return is unrealistic in terms of a demand is that implementing the right of return would for Israel, basically Israel would just never accept it because it would mean that the country that Israelis now lived in would be like 80% Palestinians. Right. And so, so, well, and that's, yes. So, that's what I think is so. You're not entitled to your Jewish-only colonial state, but that is the reality of it, and I think that's what Finkelstein is saying. He's He thinks essentially what you're saying is you're destroying Israel. 
you know, it's not going to be Israel anymore because the whole idea of Israel is this Jewish homeland. Right. And it's not going to be a Jewish homeland when the large majority of the population So are, it, it's a clash of UN resolutions because there is a legal basis for Israel. Yep. And there's a legal basis for right of return. Yes. So we're fucked. Huh. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pick too many bones here, but that was just, that did come to my mind that right. the core of the critique of some of the demands of BDS, I think, are often not addressed when wholesale BDS supporters are looking at those claims. Right. You know, the one thing I wish you had have asked, Nora, was um, why do they call it the West Bank when it's east of the Gaza Strip? What do you mean? Well, they call it the West Bank. Yeah. But it's east of the Gaza Strip. Like, wouldn't it be the East Bank? Or they call it the West Strip, maybe. Well, it's a, well, it's it's obviously west of something. Yeah, but but if, but because the two are connected, you should call that one well, East I Bank. Don't, I don't think that's how it West works. Gaza. I no. find it confusing as somebody trying to decide a position. No, on I, conflict. No, I don't think I don't think you understand. It's just called the oh, West Bank. I understand. Bank. Yeah, but it's east. It's even e- it's east of here, even unless you go the other way. That's like calling East Kildonan and West Kildonan. Like, you, you're going to call the West Coast the East Coast, and then the East Coast the, the Strip? Well, I guess the West Coast could be the East Coast of the Pacific Ocean. Maybe the West Bank is the West Coast of the Mediterranean Sea.